It's been called the war for southern independence. It's been called the war to save the Union. General Sherman called it cruel. General Lee called it terrible. Tonight, World Talk Radio presents the first in a series of internet radio broadcasts about a moment in time when one nation became two and then one again. In the process, over half a million people gave their lives for what they believed to be right. From Portland, Maine to San Diego, California, the land was spattered with the blood of brothers. This program is dedicated to them. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Phil Russman. No period in American history has attracted more scholars and enthusiasts than the Civil War. From Australia to Russia, roundtable groups and websites populate the Internet. Recently, that interest has grown in part due to a book called The Battle Cry of Freedom. So groundbreaking and captivating was this narrative of the Civil War that the author was awarded the Pulitzer Prize and is our guest tonight. Dr. James McPherson. Speaking with Dr. McPherson will be our guest host, Professor Gaston Espinosa from Claremont McKenna College. Coming up in a moment, Dr. James McPherson. and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. 
two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. And with me today is Dr. James McPherson. Thank you for joining us, Dr. McPherson. Well, thank you for having me today. Why does the Civil War remain a subject of intense interest to millions of people 140 years after it ended? Well, one reason is the huge uh, human toll that that war took. Uh, the number of dead in the American Civil War was at least 620,000 out of a population of about 32 million in the 1860s. That was 2% of the whole American population. And if uh, the United States were to lose 2% of its people in a war fought today at the beginning of the 21st century, the number of American war dead would be five and one-half million. Unbelievable. And you can just imagine what kind of a shadow that would cast for generations into the future. And that's true of the American Civil War. It cast a shadow uh, deeply into the future. That sounds like a negative shadow, but it also casts some positive shadows in the future because it permanently changed the nature of uh, the United States. It ensured the survival of the United States as one nation. Uh, that was the principal issue of the war. And it also brought about the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of four million slaves and therefore brought to an end the institution that had plagued and divided and embittered Americans ever since 17. 89 in the Constitution. I think another reason for the popularity of the Civil War is the kind of larger-than-life uh, characters who have become enshrined in our national um, pantheon. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, of course, uh, being the foremost one, uh, but Ulysses S. Grant, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman on the northern side, especially in the south, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and some of the other southern commanders. Uh, they've taken on a kind of mythical status in American culture, and especially, I think, in, in Southern culture for Lee and Jackson. And that mythical status has manifested itself on television, hasn't, hasn't it? What are some examples of this interest via television and museums, etc.? Well, of course, the most uh, familiar and outstanding example was the Ken Burns 11-hour video documentary which first aired back in 1990 but has been rebroadcast several times on public television uh... it's in both uh... uh, um, uh dvd now and in vhs uh, it's been broadcast abroad it's been it's been estimated that uh, at least forty million people in the united states and many others uh, abroad have seen that um, the History Channel has had a, a program that they keep repeating of 52 episodes called the Civil War Journal. Mm. Uh, there have been any number of documentaries on television on Lincoln. Uh, there was a major one on Grant a couple of years ago. Uh, there's a new Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, there's another one planned for Richmond, Virginia. There are four 
popular Civil War magazines that come out six or seven times a year and have Remarkable. a combined circulation of about 300,000. No other period in American history has has such has evoked such popular interest. There are all the reenactors. There are the Civil War roundtables, more than 400 of them. Uh, it's a really remarkable phenomenon, uh, unmatched on, on by any other event in American history. And, and wasn't Robert Duvall in a recent film about the Civil War? Yes, Gods and Generals. Uh, uh, Duvall played Lee. Uh, that was a so-called prequel to a movie that came out about ten years ago, Gettysburg, based on the novel The Killer Angels, which was a Pulitzer Prize winner and a bestseller. Uh, the novel, and that continues to be extremely, extremely popular. Do you find this interest is primarily in the South, where most might believe it is, or is it both in the North and the South? Well, it's in both North and South, but it's stronger in the South than any other part of the country. There's no doubt about that, uh, especially the reenactor phenomenon. Uh, also, organizations like the Sons of Confederate Veterans and the United Daughters of the Confederacy uh, keep alive what they called Southern heritage or Confederate heritage in a far more prominent way than comparable organizations in the North. The only comparable organization in the North is the Sons of Union Veterans, and it is far less, uh, it's far less uh, uh, visible and active than the Sons of Confederate Veterans. I think that's because the war took place primarily in the South. Uh, it completely destroyed uh, the culture and society and economic and social institutions of the Old South, uh, which then have become uh, romanticized and, and uh, mythologized by these Southern heritage groups. And so the interest in the Civil War has remained strongest in the South. They have continued to try to come to grips with defeat, and they've done so by creating uh, what is often called the myth of the lost cause, that they they were beaten down by superior numbers and resources of a more industrialized, advanced society, but they fought nobly and they fought courageously for what they believed in, and that when they lost, something important in American culture was lost. This is part of the way in which uh, millions, I think, of Southern whites, whether or not they had any Confederate ancestors, try to keep alive a kind of vision of a different society, uh, from the one that um, that overcame their their effort to create an independent nation back in 1861. Does that vision include moving the nation back to the place where blacks and whites were separate, or is this new mythology a new hybrid? It's certainly a hybrid. I think for a long time the um, myth of the lost cause, the Confederate heritage groups, uh, did try to, they, they were a bulwark of, of um, segregation in the South, of Jim Crow, of white supremacy. I think uh, there's still some of that legacy in the uh, Confederate flag issue, uh, but for the most part, the, the Sons of Confederate Veterans, the United Donors of the Confederacy, and other groups in the South uh, play down that aspect of the Southern past. In fact, they even uh, do their best to deny that uh, slavery was at the center of uh, why the South seceded in the first place. What do they argue? Uh, they argue that it was um, an effort to create a, a, a separate nation based on states' rights, based on a distinctive culture. Uh, that's all true. What they refuse to acknowledge is that distinctive culture was based on slavery, 
uh, and white supremacy, and that states' rights was a, a, a means of trying to uh, protect uh, and preserve that society. How have African-American scholars responded to this remythologization of Southern culture and Southern history, and do you find that blacks and whites are both equally interested in this story in the South, or is it primarily a story that interests Southern whites? Well, to take the second part of your question first, uh, it is primarily a story that interests Southern whites. Uh, uh, Southern blacks are far less interested in the American Civil War, and some of them are consciously uh, indifferent to it. But isn't that kind of ironic, given the fact that they were the ones that were liberated? That's quite right. Uh, it is ironic, but in some ways I think it's understandable, because so much of the popular culture uh, associated with the Civil War today, and this comes out in some of those magazines I mentioned a moment ago, uh, is is overlaid with a kind of romanticization of the Confederate heritage and of the Old South and uh, African Americans want nothing to do with that. They 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 reject that idea. That the extent to which the dominant image of uh, the South and the Confederacy and indeed the interest in the Civil War in the South is the Confederate battle flag uh, is a is one reason why I think a lot of African Americans just don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, there's another irony I think as well. The Civil War did abolish slavery and liberate four million slaves and, of course, their, their uh, descendants. But in, in, there's a sense of pride in that because black Americans played an important role in Union victory as soldiers and as laborers for the Union cause. But at the same time, there's a sense of, um, of shame uh, about the institution of slavery and about the fact that it took the outside uh, power of uh, the Union army and of the of the Civil War as a whole to bring about an end of slavery. And I think a lot of African Americans today would like to um, not, not, to, not to commemorate that heritage of slavery, even the heritage of emancipation. But uh, to get back to the first part of your question, uh, African American historians and scholars have directly challenged, uh, met head-on, the Southern white uh, romanticization of the Confederacy, the myth of the lost cause, the idea that the South was fighting for something uh, nobler than just slavery, and they have um, have strongly argued that slavery was at the root of secession, and that the abolition of slavery was uh, the the primary uh, result of the Civil War, and that it represented a, a kind of revolution of freedom in which African Americans themselves played a major role. So you have the kind of um, odd situation in which many African American scholars uh, are intensely interested in the issue of slavery and emancipation and the post-emancipation transformation of race relations in the South or the, the, the limitations on that transformation, whereas they the uh, large uh, number of uh, non of of average uh, people in the African American community really uh, are are relatively indifferent to that story. Does this romanticizing affect both sides? In other words, have African Americans fallen into the same trap as many Southern whites are trying to reconstruct a level of empowerment that in fact did not take place, or do they do a better job of? 
capturing the reality on the ground? Well, I think they've done a better job of capturing the reality, but uh, there is an overtone of uh, romanticization in the other direction, as as you suggest. Uh, in recent years, there's been a um, what's called the thesis of self-emancipation, that is that the four million slaves really took the initiative in liberating themselves during the Civil War by forcing this, the uh, emancipation issue on the, on the Lincoln administration and on the North, uh, that by coming into Union lines from the beginning of the war by, uh, by ones and twos, by dozens, and eventually by thousands, they forced the, uh, the Northern government to, to move toward emancipation uh, reluctantly, uh, that it wasn't Lincoln who freed the slaves, but rather the fr slaves who freed themselves, especially after they became soldiers in the Union Army starting in, in late 1862 and early 1863. And while I think that's truer to history than the, than the Southern version of romanticizing, the Southern white version of romanticizing the past, I think it also is, a, is an exaggeration uh, in, one, in, in the opposite direction. But I think it's been a healthy development because it has forced uh, historians to take a closer look uh, at uh, the Lincoln administration's policy toward slavery and eventually toward emancipation and the post-emancipation status of the freed slaves. Uh, no longer can we, uh, can we remain indifferent or ignorant uh, about that issue. That's, that leads to a really important question, I think, in the minds of many, and that is what was Lincoln's views of the war and slavery. Was slavery the primary uh, catalyst that launched, prompted him to lead the war of Union? And secondly, what impact did Frederick Douglass have on Lincoln's thinking? Some scholars have suggested that between 1861 and 1863, Douglass did have an impact on Lincoln's moral conscience and his attitudes towards the issue. Okay, to take the first part of your question first, uh, the relationship of slavery and the war in Lincoln's mind, I think you have to separate um, two issues here that sometimes get conflated or confused with each other. Uh, the first is the uh, roots of secession, the reasons why first seven and eventually eleven slave states seceded in 1861. Uh, that was because with the election of Lincoln, uh, as the first Republican and the first anti-slavery president, uh, Southern whites who had dominated the federal government through their control of the Democratic Party during the antebellum generation uh, realized that they had lost control of the national government. Lincoln uh, won the presidency without a single electoral vote uh, from any of the 15 slave states. That meant that the North was from here on uh, going to dominate uh, the national government not on not on a platform of abolishing slavery, at least not immediately, but on one of of uh, prohibiting any further expansion of slavery, and as Lincoln himself put it, uh, placing slavery in the course of ultimate extinction. Southern states seceded uh, because they feared uh, that they had lost control of their own future and especially control over the future of the institution of slavery. Once they seceded, the issue was transformed from slavery to union versus disunion. Uh, and Lincoln took office uh, at a time when the Confederate States of America had formed a separate nation out of part of what used to be the United States of America. And he was determined uh, not to allow that uh, to become permanent. So for the first year or two of the war, Lincoln's primary, uh, almost his sole purpose, and I think this was widely shared in the North, 
uh, was to suppress what they called rebellion and restore the Union. And at first that meant the Union as it was, uh, which meant uh, not uh, bringing the slavery issue to the fore because the slavery issue had proved divisive. It had divided the country already, and Lincoln was trying to reunite the country. But as the war went on, slavery could not be kept down. Uh, and this brings up the second part of your question, the kinds of pressure that was brought upon the uh, Lincoln administration by such uh, eloquent abolitionist leaders as Frederick Douglass, uh, but uh, he was not the only one. There were many other black and white abolitionists and a radical anti or even abolitionist wing of Lincoln's own party, uh, which said that this war had been brought on, that secession had been brought on by slavery, that the South was fighting to preserve slavery and the North could never win the war, and equally important, uh, preserve the peace in the future in a united country so long as that divisive issue of slavery uh, remained. And so they put increasing pressure on the Lincoln administration to move toward uh, the abolition of slavery as a not only as a war aim, but as a means of uh, depriving the Confederacy of its labor force uh, and adding that labor force to the side of the Union and eventually adding its military manpower to the side of the Union. So, uh, and, and this, this uh, pressure, in some ways, I think, was welcome to Lincoln because his personal convictions were uh, strongly opposed to slavery, and, and I think he used the radical pressure from such uh, spokesmen as Frederick Douglass to move in a direction uh, that he really wanted to go. But he was able to say, look, uh, I'm moving in this direction because of this enormous pressure uh, that has swayed so much of northern public opinion. And so he was able, by that means, to bring a lot of conservatives along to that Perfect. decision. By let's, let's hold that thought, and we'll come back to it right after the break.